In today's episode, we open up the Gospel of Mark to chapter 2, verses 13 through chapter 3, verse 6. We'll be covering a few events from Jesus' ministry this morning. First, he calls the tax collector Levi to follow him, and Levi hosts a dinner for Jesus with many other sinners. And when questioned by the Pharisees for associating with such people, Jesus declares that he has come for the sick, not for the righteous. He is then questioned for allowing his disciples to pluck grain on the Sabbath, and Jesus responds by declaring himself the Lord of the Sabbath. Then, entering the synagogue on yet another Sabbath, Jesus heals a man's withered hand as the Pharisees watch to accuse him of unlawful actions. Angered by Jesus' disregard for their tradition, the Pharisees begin plotting with the Herodians on how they might destroy him. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Tuesday, October 24th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we can explore the Holy Scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. You can learn more about their translating and publishing work on their website at lhfmissions.org. Well, folks, we're live today, so you're always welcome to call into the studio. We'll put your question out on the air. That number is 1-800-730-2727, or you can reach me by email at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. I'm always monitoring my email and messenger, so if you send me a question during the show, I might be able to get it answered on the air. And our guest to help us answer those questions is the Reverend Dr. Burnell Eckert. He's the pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Kewanee, Illinois. Good morning, Pastor Eckert, and welcome back to the program. Good morning. Can you hear me all right? I can hear you pretty good. Uh, how are things going for you and the saints there at St. Paul? Well, just wonderfully. It was odd. Uh, a few moments ago, the power here went on and off totally. So I had to reboot everything, and I just made it in time. Oh, no. Well, I'm so glad that you're able to make it. In fact, we have storms here in Minnesota, too, so I've been carefully looking out the window, hoping we don't lose internet uh, connectivity or power myself. So, well, I'm just glad you're here. Happy that you're on the phone with us. Brother, would you start our time together in prayer? Uh, certainly. Uh, let us pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, open our hearts and minds to hear, receive, and understand well according to thy will thy holy gospel, and the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask through him who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. Amen. Amen. Well, now I see you're on Opal again. You sound great. Well, I'll tell you what, why don't we go ahead and catch the folks up? We, we, we haven't gone very far in Mark. Uh, we've just started a couple of days ago. We'll be beginning with Mark chapter 2, verse 13, when he calls Levi, also known as Matthew, but maybe let the folks know what Jesus has been up to up to this point. Well, up to this point, I mean, the Gospel of Mark is, is rather brief and to the point. It gets right down to the point. It opens with the, the baptism of Jesus, which, of course, in, if you're, you're going to write a Gospel, you have to have John the Baptist starting things off. So they go right to his baptism and then his temptation in the wilderness very briefly and uh, following that, he begins to preach and to uh, drive out demon and heal. And then he begins here to call his disciples. So that's where we're at. 
Yeah, and it's kind of a, a very one thing after another after another in the Gospel of Mark. He doesn't really let us catch his, our breath too much. But here we are. He's going to be calling Levi. When we last saw Jesus, he had healed a paralytic in Capernaum. And now, after all of that uh, that went on at that synagogue, we have verse 13. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at a table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came to call the righteous, not the righteous, pardon me, but sinners. Okay, pausing there at the end of verse 17. So he goes by uh, by the sea again, and there in the booth is Levi the tax collector. Brother, unpack this for us. Take it through it. Who's Levi? What's what's a tax collector doing in a booth? I don't think that really resonates with our modern audience. (laughs) Well, of course, Levi, we also know as Matthew, who goes alternatively by the name of Levi in this gospel. And the tax collectors, of course, probably many people understand this, but in case someone doesn't, the tax collectors were appointed by the Roman government to assess and to receive custom taxes from the people. But the Roman government didn't really care how they got it. So they were quite free to take as much as they wanted and give the portion of the Roman that the Romans requested to them and pocket the rest which they customarily repeatedly did, which is why you find in this gospel and other places the almost identification between the word sinner and tax collector. The tax collectors were the public sinners. They were public thieves, and no one can do anything about it, sort of like what we have going on in some of our larger cities these days, only under different circumstances. So that was what he was. And all we have, according to this gospel in St. Matthew as well, is that Jesus sees him and calls him to follow him. And he leaves and follows him immediately. I think of, uh, you know, there's that popular series, uh, The Chosen. And sometimes they get it right. And I think one of the things that they have right, in case anyone's had occasion to see that, is how Matthew is depicted as being someone who is really despised even by the company of the disciples, as it turns out. And that's quite understandable because he was coming from a position of being openly uh, antagonistic toward the people he was supposed to be one of. He was a Jew, but he acted on behalf of the Romans to bilk the Jews out of money for himself. So he was despised by everybody. And here Jesus it's really quite amazing that he did this. And interestingly, I think, and I'll look back for a minute, in this gospel, well, you have, uh, he, called, he called Simon Peter and Matthew, then he called James and John, and then comes Simon. I mean, then comes Matthew. So he's one of the first ones called. 
which is also remarkable. And it leads quite naturally to the complaints of the Pharisees who were already looking for something to accuse him of, and they didn't have any trouble here. In fact, this entire context is one in which they're out to get him. And the first way in which they seek to get him is by calling attention to the fact that he is associating with this untoward band of people because all these all these friends of Matthew then eat with him and he's in their house and he's eating with publicans and sinners or publicans or tax collectors, namely sinners. What's he doing with them? Why should he have a following? Doesn't this sort of speak for itself that he's one of them? Turn away from him and come back to us. I think that's the clear imp implication of what's going on when the when the tech, when the Pharisees complain that he's eating with sinners, they don't just innocently ask this question. They're asking with an aim to destroy Jesus already. So that's where we're at in the first place. Yeah, you, you mentioned about him taking up taxes and people not liking it. I, I think it's worth people knowing that, um, you know, there were lots of taxes back then, just as there are today. And you're right, tax collectors generally got paid on whatever they could collect over what they had to. But you had Herod's taxes, you know, this would be like almost like local taxes. This would be in addition to all the Roman taxes. There was the temple tax. There were toll road taxes. There were customs duties, right? So just like today, if, if there were uh, customs or, you know, I'm sorry, goods that were transported across borders, well, that there would be substantial taxes collected, especially at those key trade points. Perhaps that is the booth that Matthew was in, uh, maybe a crossing or something. Um, but, you know, he's right there at the shore, too. And then, of course, there's the Roman tribute tax. This is the one that I think the Jews uh, were the most res uh, resentful of because it symbolized that Roman domination. And so I'm correct in saying that Levi and Matthew, he's he's a Jew, correct? Oh, yeah. Son so of Alphaeus, so, so it was like one of their own. Yes. And so that makes him all the more despised. And I think that right. the the main thing we'd want to emphasize here is is not the oppression of taxes in themselves, which is bad enough, as you point out, but the fact that he is openly taking more and pocketing the difference, and everybody knows it. So that's the kind of character he is and associates with. I mean, it's clearly no wonder that the Pharisees were upset. Oh, yeah. Even, even his own disciples were upset, no doubt. Oh, yeah, I'm sure they were not happy with this guy being brought. It's like, you know, you're you're bringing someone in who doesn't look good for the cause, Jesus. So I don't know that we should associate with this guy. And I think we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but let's I want to look a little bit at the immediacy of his of his following, though. So interestingly enough, Mark loves the word immediately. He uses it a mm. lot. And yet he doesn't use right. it here, although we still get the sense of immediacy. He tells him follow me. We don't know that he said anything else, but this is what's recorded for us. And it's, and it's revealed that he rose and he followed him. I imagine, and again, we're just sort of imagining and speculating to some extent, but I imagine that might have brought some consequences for Matthew. I, I don't know that these guys could just quit their job without having consequences. I mean, maybe they could, but uh, it seems like the immediacy of him following Jesus is really striking. Oh, yes. And in addition, uh, the, the immediacy of the, 
I mean, it goes right into this this meal that he has with other tax collectors and sinners, and they followed him too. Jesus says to Matthew, "Follow me," and immediately does. Immediately he does. And then all of a sudden, immediately, we've got many of them following him. So it's it's very clearly, uh, from the standpoint of the evangelist, a divine activity that is pulling sinners away from themselves and to follow him and become his disciples instead. As, of course, he points out when he responds to the, to the Pharisees. It's all, uh, it's all very clearly... Uh, the act of God coming into a sinful world uh, and the Pharisees refuse it. So in fact, here's the, here's one ironical thing. The fact that these tax collectors followed him would seem to indicate without question that they're repenting of their sinfulness. I mean, that's always the case with people who follow him. They repent and they follow him. Meanwhile, the Pharisees, who don't acknowledge their sin, refuse Jesus, and they become the real sinners here. That is, the, the impenitent sinners, those who are outside of the, the uh, community of God. So it's, it's a, quite a contrast and quite an uh, irony here, I think. I know some Christians have seen this, and they have seen it as a, an example to follow, where when they have the opportunity, they might have what they even call Matthew parties, where they intentionally gather together uh, coworkers and friends, many of whom who may not know Jesus, for the purposes of introducing them to Jesus. Now, I don't know how well widespread that practice is, but I've certainly heard of it. Have you ever heard of Matthew parties? I have not. <laughs> Well, just Google it, uh, and folks at home, you can Google it too. But yeah, especially in, um, um, I would say, evangelical circles, there's this little bit, it's not large, but a, a minor movement to go and just sort of follow this example of saying, I'm so excited that I follow Jesus that I'm going to intentionally reach out to those who are close to me. And whether you have a Matthew party or not, and I guess we could question how useful that is, I do think it speaks to the intentionality in which the that we should have as we share with Jesus, building relationships with people so that we can share um, what Christ has done for us and share, of course, what Christ has done for them. And uh, in this context, he gathers these people together, sinners and tax collectors, people like himself. But I, I ask folks today, how many, how many uh, atheists do you know? How many non-Christians do you know? How many people who aren't walking with Christ do you know and oftentimes, I guess because of the isolationist nature, but we tend to weed our our friends out. We, we then surround ourselves only with people who think and act like us. And when we do that, we lose the opportunity to share Jesus with others. So while I'm not necessarily recommending Matthew parties as a movement, I definitely think that there's some intentionality that we should have about sharing Jesus with others. Yeah, there's also, I mean, on the other hand, there's the... The biblical saying, I think Paul refers to this uh, uh, cultural saying with approbate, with with agreement, uh, bad company communicates good manners. So you, you got to be careful on the one hand who you associate with friends. On the other hand, of course, the call. And so we we need to regard all mankind as as potential hearers and believers just as we have become. 
what's fascinating in this in this account is that the active one is Jesus. It's not it's not Levi. I mean, the, the Matthew parties might be a good thing. I can't comment on them because I'm not familiar with them. But the active one here in this account is Jesus only. He is the one who, as he responds to the Pharisees, says, I, I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. I mean, that's a very strong statement of who he is as well. He's the active one here, and the does is highlighted as divine by virtue alone of the fact that it happens with an immediate effect. These people he calls, it, it sort of highlights the power of his call in this case. You have no qualms from me that Jesus is the one doing the acting here, but I would like to go ahead and point out, though, that it's Matthew who gathered his friends together to meet Jesus. In the same way that Jesus does the work with our salvation, we're the ones who show up to worship and receive his gifts. So I, I, I don't want to remove the, the, the evangelistic aspect of this text. In fact, I'd like to emphasize it. Of course, Jesus is the one who does it, but I don't know that we even have evidence within the text that these men follow Jesus, I, at least, and maybe I'm missing it, which has happened before, but is there anything in the text that says that the people who are gathered then were disciples of Jesus? Certainly Matthew well, it, or Levi followed him. Well, you have in verse 15, which we just went over, they sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for they were many, and they followed Who, who were the many that followed him? I would think that is a reference to those who were eating with Matthew. I mean, I don't dogmatic a statement that everybody there ended up following him, but I think that the thrust of this of this text here, of this of these verses, is that as soon as he called Levi, Levi, and as soon as Jesus ate with they with these with these tax collectors with his disciples, they followed him too. So I mean the the uh, the double the double that there's just um, there's just a very strong sense of his power to, to way for himself to put it rather crudely perhaps and that's what I get out of this exchange here that that uh, that on the one hand I mean the, the the highlight of it all is in Jesus response to the Pharisees he is busy meeting with eating with those who are sick as their physician to heal them. But the righteous, that is the, I'm putting that in scare quotes, the Pharisees who call themselves righteous, they're not the ones he's here for anyway, because they will not have him. I mean, he would love to have them. And in fact, I think that his repeated exchanges with them are designed, first of all, to get even them to repent. But he is not about to, uh, in, in the end, he is not about to eat with someone who does not repent. For the last, in the last, in the last event, those who refuse him, he will at the end refuse. So he's not come to call the righteous to, to repentance. They don't. They, he's not come to call the righteous. They don't need him, at least according to their own view. He is here to call sinners to repentance. So it's a good thing to be a sinner, to be someone 
who is in need of repentance, and then, of course, to repent and then come and eat with Jesus, as, of course, we do in the Holy Supper. Okay. I think I might be back on the air with my guest. Pastor, are you there? Yes, I am. <laughs> well, I tell you what, on my end, I don't know about you on your end, but on my end, this whole past five minutes or so, I didn't even know I was off the air. I just had some of the greatest comments. You guys will miss it. It was so insightful. Oh, well. <laughs> What can you do? You yeah, can't, you I was talking for a while. <laughs> oh, talking. Bad, well, but we both got we, disconnected. We did, we did. I was disconnected. I man, I was on a roll, waiting for you to come back in, but I wasn't even on the air myself. My goodness. Well, that's just what <laughs> happened in live, folks. So, in any case, that's... I honestly don't know where we left off. So, here's what I'm going to do. Um, I think we should just move on to the next section, starting with verse 18. Uh, we're going to leave sure. the discussion of Jesus calling Levi. Uh, we've kind of lost our mojo on that. We're going to go into the next part. So here we go okay. with verse 18. Okay. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and they said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, and the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skin, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But a new wine is for fresh wine skins. Okay, ending there with verse 22. Um, brother, is fasting bad? Take us through. Heaven, heavens, no. Fasting is indeed a fine outward bodily preparation, as, as the Catechism says. Uh, what's interesting here is, is that uh, Jesus is calling attention to himself as the bridegroom. The fasting custom uh, is related to a to a wedding here and the the coming of the bridegroom to the wedding well when you have a wedding that's not the occasion for fasting that's the occasion for celebration that's the occasion for feasting the implication here is also i think that john is the as he is called elsewhere by jesus the friend of the bridegroom he is the best man he is the one who prepares the way for the coming of the bridegroom and fast, fasting is a form of preparation. So why prepare when you've got the bridegroom with you? It's an indication here that the purpose of fasting is being, is being absolutely tended to by Jesus and his disciples. If they were to be fasting now, they would be indicating thereby that Jesus himself is not the bridegroom. So they are actually, according to the gospel here, more or less required not to fast, but to feast as an affirmation that the bridegroom is with them. And then they, this, this reference to the fact that he will be taken from them, of course, is a reference to his, his death and burial. And then they'll be, in, they'll be in mourning. And mourning is associated in many cases with fasting. So uh, the whole thrust here is that the traditions of the Jews, including the tradition of fasting, are meant to 
highlight the coming of the Christ, the bridegroom. And in every, at every turn, he is emphasizing the fact that that's who he is. And that's why he goes into the, the new cloth and the new wine and the need for new wineskins and so forth. Now, the Pharisees are just caught in the old. And for them, the, this evidently, for them, the, the scriptures are ends in themselves. They are not indicators or pointers pointing forward to the coming of the Christ. And at every turn, he is, he is telling them in various ways exactly who he is. He's the bridegroom. He's the Christ. Well, it says here that John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. So I understand Jesus' metaphor, especially in the way in which you explain it. Um, what was the fasting practice of, say, John, I assume it's John the Baptizer's disciples and the Pharisees? I mean, how is that different? I mean, it, was, were those fastings related to mourning or penitence or, or what? What was the difference? Well, I think that the fasting of, you know, you've got the, for example, the uh, Jesus parable of the Pharisee and the publican, you know, the, the Pharisee boasts that he fasts five times a week. Um, and, and the, similarly, the, the uh, disciples of John the Baptist were also fasting, albeit in their case, it was, it was the proper use of the fast. Whereas in the Pharisees case, uh, they're using it as, as ways to call attention to themselves but in both cases, they are meant to be looking forward to the coming of the Christ. So it would be pointless for them to continue to fast when he comes. And in fact, some of his disciples were, had been disciples of John, and now, of course, they're no longer fasting. This is also related to what comes next. I mean, in every case, the Pharisees are attacking him for something which would almost be legitimate if he were not the Christ. Mm -hmm. But the fact that he is the Christ would make it illegitimate for him to continue to engage in these rituals which were intended to prepare them for the coming of the promised one. I so he's not only something that we miss. Yeah, I'm glad you're emphasizing that because that is something we miss is that we, we often think of them, well, just out to get Jesus. And, and that's true. But I think we forget why they're out to get Jesus. They genuinely believed he was a blaspheming usurper of the Messiah's role. And, of course, they're wrong, and they had to ignore a lot of evidence and be dedicated to a lot of their own ideas and traditions to come to that conclusion. But that still happens today. But, yeah, so I, I'm glad you brought that up. Please continue. What's that? Well, I was just saying, please continue. Yeah, that that was great. I mean, well, oh, I, oh I, please I, continue. Please, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The, there's one more thing about the the the, the wineskins. <laughs> I always think of the ironical fact. I know this is in in Luke's writing, but there is a, a fine demonstration of putting new wine into an old wineskin in the first chapter of Acts. Recall what happened to Judas. He burst asunder. His bowels gushed out. That's what happens when you're, an, when you're not of a new creation. If you're not a new creation, if you're a pretender, if you're a hypocrite, such as Judas was, you will burst because of the new wine. In this case, I'm thinking of the sacrament. He burst asunder, literally. He was mm -hmm. a, a living indication or a dead one now of, 
what happens when you put new wine into an old wineskin. You burst. You have to be a new creation. This is this is the the Markan version, I would suggest, of John three. You know, to to be born again, you must be a new creation. What matters is being a new creation. And the the coming of the bridegroom is the coming of a of a new family. Because when there's a wedding, there is a new family. There's there's a new home. Everything is new when when the bridegroom comes and the and is joined to his bride, it's all new. If you're not going to accept the bride receive or accept the bridegroom, well you're going to be in big trouble. I think that's what he's getting at here in his mm-hmm. images. Well, we definitely see a contrast here between the ways, the rules, the rituals of the Pharisees and the ways of Jesus, who's proclaiming the freedom that comes with the arrival of the kingdom. We see that in this description of trying to put new onto old. In the next segment that we're going to listen to now, Jesus again comes into conflict with the Pharisees, starting with verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Well, I'm sure that last line really got their blood boiling. But starting at the top, um, what what law were they breaking by just plucking a few heads of grain on the Sabbath? What's fascinating here is that the Pharisees are totally clueless because there were there concerned about the Sabbath day. And what what now Jesus does is he doesn't answer with an uh, with an example of someone else breaking the Sabbath day, but of someone else breaking a different stipulation, namely David and his disciples. And that account in First Samuel is can only be properly taken as a foretaste of the coming of Christ. Because he and his disciples were, David and his disciples were going through the fields, and they came to the to the to, to the priest, and he gave them the showbread because that was there was there was no other bread for them to have, so he so he gave it to them. This was all a prefiguring, I believe, of the coming of Christ. So in fact, this occasion where Jesus' disciples are going through the cornfields. And eating the grains is what puts flesh on the bones of that particular event. This is the fulfillment of that event itself. And the Pharisees, of course, are clueless. They're still worried about the Sabbath day. They don't, they don't understand that everything that had gone on before is now reaching its grand conclusion, which is why now he doubles down on the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I mean, that is a strong, powerful statement in no uncertain terms of who he is. And in fact, the previous word, he says that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. 
Um, interestingly, in the Greek, there's a little definite article there. The Sabbath, I don't want to make too much of this, but I couldn't help but notice it. The Sabbath was made for the man. As a way of saying, perhaps, that the whole point of your Sabbath requirements was that they were made to point our attention to the coming of the eternal Sabbath rest that is that the Christ will bring. And here he is. That's why the Sabbath was made for pointing forward to the Son of Man, who, of course, is Lord of the Sabbath, because he is the, origin, the origination of it. Uh, they, if they were upset before, they're really upset now, because as far as they're concerned, he's obviously blaspheming, all because they refuse to receive his word in the first place. It just gets uglier and uglier. You know, I was thinking about uh, this the other day when I was on, I think it was Amazon or something like that. I was on, I was shopping online, and some very strange products started popping up. And I don't know why the algorithm decided to bless me with these products, but they were things that Jews, some very strict observant Jews today use to help them observe the Sabbath. For instance, there were special lights that they didn't have to, I think they could wave their hand over it to turn it on so they didn't have to flip a switch. There was special <laughs> uh, tapes and, and Velcro pieces they could put in the refrigerator so that the light in the refrigerator wouldn't come on on the Sabbath. There were all kinds of these different things so that they could do as little work as possible. I think what we see here is a very similar thing. You know, Jesus says that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And while I certainly don't subscribe to the way that modern uh, observant Jews do it today, um, I've seen this even in Christian circles. I remember growing up, there was a big debate at the church that I went to whether or not playing softball was lawful on the Sabbath. They had a church softball team, and one church thought it was lawful to practice on the Sabbath, and the other one said it wasn't. I went to a church where um, we would go to uh, lunch after and the pastor would chastise the waitress for working on Sunday while she served him. So I, I can see that this observance of the Sabbath and what the Sabbath and that Sabbath rest really is, as you've already said, fulfilled in Christ. But, they, but still today, people confuse the Sabbath or even the purpose of going to worship with something we have to do to please God. That's not what it was ever meant to be, correct, brother? Correct. And not only that, it's it's sort of funny, Sunday is not really the Sabbath day. Saturday is. Sunday is the first day of the week. The reason we especially worship on Sundays is is not not due to some Sabbath requirement, but because that's the day on which Jesus rose from the dead. It's a, it's a weekly, undeniable indication of what happened on one particular Sunday, that he rose from the dead. So, I mean, if you're going to if you're going to be real strict about the Sabbath, you're going to have to be like, well, the Seventh-day Adventists, I suppose, or the, who is it, the Mormons and others who, who observe their Sabbath on Saturday. Well, they're stuck in the Old Testament, as indeed were these Pharisees. The, uh, yeah, but, do, but do we not point to the Third Commandment, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, when we teach our people and teach our youth about the importance of gathering together around God's Word and sacrament. So there is a connection between the Sabbath and what we do on Sunday, but as you're pointing out, 
when we gather around and honor the Sabbath, it's about receiving our rest that we find through the work and life of Christ, not some yep. sort of make sure we don't turn on the refrigerator light because it'll anchor God. <laughs> well, in fact, Christ himself is the Sabbath. I will give you rest, he says. And he, he, the, the true rest is not just, you know, abstaining from work one day of the week, but the eternal Sabbath. You know, I think it's interesting that if you look at, for example, the creation week in Genesis, the seventh day does not have an evening. It's just every other day of the morning and evening, not the seventh day. Even in the original words that we hear from God, there is a sense that the Sabbath means something more than what at first meets the eyes. The Sabbath is meant to be something that there remains for the people of God to enter into, as Hebrews says, talking about the 95th Psalm. Christ himself is the Sabbath. And so we should fear and love God that we do not despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. That says nothing at all about a day of the week. It's it's about hearing the word of God, the word of Christ. That's the fulfillment of the Sabbath command. It's Christ himself. Christ fulfills on our behalf, and the rest that he earns, he gives to us. He is our rest, as you pointed out. I think that's great. Um, I tell you what, I think that we should take just a couple of minutes for a break. Uh, I know we're a little late. I'd like to do that, um, even though we've messed up a little bit and had some uh, had some music play. But, folks, we will come back and finish up our text for today, which is going to be all the first six verses of Chapter 3. So don't go anywhere. We'll be back, folks. Thanks for sticking it out with us. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back, dear listeners. I'm Pastor Phil Vu, your host, and this is Thy Strong Word. With me this morning is the Reverend Dr. Burnell Eckhart, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Kewanee, Illinois. I just want to take this time to thank you for sticking it out with us. That We've had a little bit of technical difficulties, but the show must go on, and we're continuing to study Mark Chapter 2. In fact, we're moving into Mark Chapter 3 right now. As always, I invite you to reach out to me via email at pastorvu at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. But right now, let's get back into our Bibles with Pastor Eckhart. Brother, are you ready to move into Chapter 3? Okay, sure. Let's do it. Chapter 3, verse 1 from ESV. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. 
and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. I got to tell you, it kind of angers my blood at their hardness of heart. I mean, Jesus asks a very simple question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or harm, to save life or to kill? He even phrased it in such a way that gives you the answer he wants you to give, but they could not bring themselves to, I guess, agree with Jesus might be one way to look at it. Um, unpack this for us. Well, the, uh, the, the, uh, the strong language of, of, the verse, of verse 5 about how he looked in them with anger, that's a particular feature of Mark's emphasis here, that Jesus, Jesus was furious because they were not only failing to see who he was, that they were utterly failing to be even good Jews. Even, even Israelites before the coming of the Christ were supposed to be kind and loving. That's the, full, that's the essence of the commandments, to love your neighbor as yourself. And here's this poor man who needs help. You know, I think it's, uh, where is it in, it's either in Matthew or Luke, where he, he points out that if you have an ox or a, a donkey that falls into a well, you're going to fall it out. You're going to pull it out on the Sabbath day. He is here make, exposing their hypocrisy utterly bare. Well, they don't care because they're not listening in the first place. And so he heals this man. And what I find really interesting about this healing is that Jesus actually does nothing. It's the man who stretches forth his hand. And all of a sudden it's healed. What did Jesus do? He did nothing. <laughs> he literally didn't work on the Sabbath except for his power going out from him. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't lift a finger. <laughs> <laughs> I never noticed that before. Yeah, I mean, you're right, though. Absolutely, you're right. You know, one modern, I guess, correlation I could think of this would be if we were in the middle of the liturgy. And let's, and let's say it's a nice uh, feast Sunday, very, very high church, however you want to call it. All the smells and bells are out, Christmas or something. And someone in the congregation uh, begins to have chest pains. They clutch their chest and they go into the middle. Could you imagine anyone, uh, even the presiding minister, saying, well, I'd love to deal with that, but, you know, I'm right here in the middle of the intro, so I can't stop. <laughs> or, you know, oh, I'm, I'm preaching, so it would be inappropriate for me to come down and help this person. I mean, that's a kind of a silly example, but that's kind of what's going on. They're basically, they were, they refused to answer if it was okay to save someone's life or to do good on the Sabbath. They just remained silent. Now, here's the deal. I think they know that it is okay to save life on the Sabbath. I think they know it is okay to do good. I mean, we, we see even, even with the eating of the grain, there's testimony in Deuteronomy where travelers can eat some grain. And so, so it's, I think they know good and well that even they would help someone elsewhere. Jesus kind of brings this out. But they cannot bring themselves to agree with Jesus. That's the hardness of their heart. 
that even when he says things that they might agree with, they refuse to acknowledge it. Do you see it that way? Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he, the blindness is just is, is palpable. This is, this is in the synagogue. This is on the Sabbath day. And the whole point of it all is to receive with gladness of heart the word of God, whose heart, again, is the coming of the Christ, whose coming is indicated by the fact that he can heal people. I mean, what more could, could he possibly do to convince them of who he was? They're not interested in being convinced. This is say, the face... A- this is the face of wickedness. Yeah, sorry to interject. I, I just agree with you wholeheartedly. I, I don't think there would be any amount of evidence. Even if a man should return from the dead, they still won't believe. They have Moses and the prophets, Jesus says, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. I mean, he, he makes it very clear that they have this hardness of heart. And so what are what is their response to the fact that Jesus healed somebody on the Sabbath? Well, they decide that that's enough to destroy him. Uh, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians. Herodians were kind of like a third party. If you have the the Pharisees and the Sadducees being the conservatives and liberals, you have the Herodians. They're like a third party. They were a little more – they they were obviously for uh, King Herod and Herod's – the Herodian kings. They uh, were a little bit more okay with the Romans. They worked with them more. But in any case, even though they had plenty of disagreements with the Pharisees, they found a common enemy in Jesus. And they, so they got together, and now they're trying to figure out how to destroy him. And really, why? Well, it isn't because he healed on the Sabbath. It's because I believe that despite their hardness of heart, they do recognize that there's something different about this guy. There's plenty of people out there breaking the Sabbath. Why are they so concerned about Jesus? The, the fact that they want to destroy him is another indication from Mark of what is really behind all this. It is, it is not merely wickedness, it's demonic. His, his, his uh, struggle, his fight here is against the devil. And the devil is, is of course, now in, in the hearts and minds of these Pharisees. And what's beautiful, in a way, about all of this, which is what Mark wants to get to because of his constant use of the word immediately, as you said, we're pushing right on ahead to the cross. And the theology of the cross sees these things as part of the plan, that God uses the wicked for his purposes, that the net which they hid is that which entraps themselves. The devil, you know, to use the old fishhook analogy of the early church, was like a big fish and he sees Christ, that tender morsel, and he decides he's going to devour him. He doesn't see the fish hook hidden in his hum- humble, humiliated humanity. And it, by the very act of devouring him, he is destroyed. They are unwittingly participating in the very event that needs to transpi- transpire in order for the world to be redeemed. It's, it's just stunningly remarkable. It, it absolutely is. And, uh, and, and what a great testimony from Jesus here. You know, he teaches elsewhere that love fulfills the law. Here we see Jesus coming, loving his people to the point that he will die on a cross, and yet the devil is eager to destroy him. And those who side with the devil against Christ, of course, will find themselves 
outside of salvation at the end. And God doesn't want that. We don't want that. Uh, Brother, we are here at the end of our program with just a minute or so left. Anything else you'd like to say before we conclude? Well, I, I think we've we've covered some good ground here, even with the interruptions. <laughs> but I, I think, think it's, we have. Yeah, I think Mark's Mark's uh, thrust here is to point out the the glorious power of God to get done exactly what He wants to do, notwithstanding His enemies, and in fact, even using them for His purposes. So He's He comes to the rescue, so to speak, out of nowhere. It's God's work in our midst, and we have reason to be rejoicing with the bridegroom who has come for us. Amen to that. Well, I think with those words, we'll go ahead and end our program today. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Dr. Burnell Eckhart, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Kewanee, Illinois. Thank you, brother. Thanks for being on the show. Folks, it's been my until, pleasure. Uh, <laughs> until we meet again, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong words. 